0: What's up, guys? This is Dr. Shannon Edwards, and this is you mad, bro. We are back this week. It's great to be back. Uh, We are going to have a special guest on today, uh, attorney Alex Cabanar with McMorrow Law. Uh, But first, I wanted to kind of address something. You guys probably noticed that Dr. J wasn't on the podcast last week. Uh, He's not here again this week. As I'm sure many of you understand, especially if you're listening to this podcast on co-parenting, all relationships have ups and downs. And Dr. J and I are having a bit of a down right now. Even though we've been an open book throughout this process, um, especially with the intention of being an open book um, with starting the podcast and getting our narrative out there and uh, what we went through with our divorce and co-parenting process, um, Right now, uh, you know, I've decided that it's a time for a bit of privacy in terms of what exactly is going on. So I'm not going to get into the details of that. I do hope that Dr. J will come back to the podcast soon. uh, And if he does choose to do that, uh, then hopefully we'll be able to kind of share this part of our experience and the type of down that we're dealing with right now. And, you know, I kind of suspect that more of our listeners will probably be more familiar with this situation than when things were going along so well for us, you know, and I consider us super blessed. And I'm very grateful that regardless as to how the situation ends up this time, that we had two additional great years for our daughter, uh, that she did have us getting along and she got to spend a lot of time with The both of us there and uh, at holidays and birthdays and um, just your average, you know, Sunday night dinner and other things during the week, Um, especially during covid when it was super difficult for a lot of other families. I'm really grateful for that time that the three of us got to spend together. And I think that that's something that she will always have. Um, And I'm really grateful that she got that time with the three of us together. Um, but like I said, you know, in terms of specifics, you know, I just I, I do hope that we can work through things during this um, valley, you know, peaks and valleys of relationships like we've talked about before on the podcast and that you will hear from Dr. J uh, sometime in the future. but. I still am going to be coming to you, hopefully week after week. Uh, It might be spaced out a little bit more now. It is super hard doing a podcast uh, by yourself and running things. But I really enjoy this project. And even though it is related to my background and my clinical work, um, it's nice taking my hat off and just providing kind of anecdotal things to audiences that want to listen or perhaps people that haven't engaged in Uh, positive co-parenting or perhaps, you know, maybe aren't in co-parenting therapy um, and just kind of want to hear a little bit about different things that go on. This is also a a place to talk about the ups and downs of co-parenting in general. I'm definitely not a saint. Um, Dr. J and I have talked about different things that have gone on, um, good and bad, previously in our co-parenting relationship. And Again, even though I won't give details about what's going on right now, I'm certainly no saint um, in arguments and and different things like that. So and I, I won't claim to be. And you know, it's just a part of um, human nature and emotion and and complicated relationships. Um, so I hope that you'll still uh, come back, hopefully week after week and still uh, give a listen. And I hope to have continued guests on, family law attorneys, uh, or other therapists in the field. And I'm super excited to still be bringing you this podcast. And uh, as I said today, we're going to have attorney Alex Cabanar with McMorrow Law. And we're going to be talking about PFAs, and that's protection from abuse, uh, orders, and kind of the process that you have to go through to get a PFA. We're also going to kind of talk about the um, the positives and negatives of a PFA, kind of sometimes how uh, people can abuse the PFA system. Uh, and then on the opposite side, when it's um, not abused and used for uh, what it's intended to be used for, how to kind of go through that process, uh, the different resources that victims of domestic violence have within uh, the county and surrounding areas, and also uh, how to reach out and uh, other uh areas concerning domestic violence. Uh so without further ado, I am going to introduce you to attorney Alex Kavanaugh. All right. Hey Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Hey there. How are you, ma'am?
1: Good. Thanks so much for being here today. Can you tell everyone a little bit about you? Sure. I'm sure Shannon kind of said already, my name's Alexandra. I go by Alex uh Kavanaugh. I am a family law practitioner in Pittsburgh. My office is in Wexford. I work at McMorrow Law. I've been practicing mostly family law, dabbling here and there and other stuff, but mostly family law for about five years now. Um, so I've got a great deal of experience with some very interesting co-parenting and family related issues. I have to say, though, and I think uh, I think attorney Frank said this <laughs> when she was on Obviously, this is kind of for a entertainment purposes and kind of educational purposes only. This isn't legal advice, but take it for what it's worth. Um, No therapy, no legal. No therapy, (laughs) no legal. But, you know, I mean, maybe some advice for you guys just being people in the world.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And we should also mention that we are recording this the day after election night. So we are waiting for results to come in. So if we hear if you hear sudden shrieks, Uh, That is probably what's going on, and our editor can keep those in. Yeah,
1: I'm very (laughs) frustrated that every news source is telling me something different as far as what the electoral votes are. It's crazy time, crazy time. (laughs) Well, so like I
0: said, we're going to talk today uh, about protection from abuse situations, and legally, maybe we can start there. So in terms of domestic violence and how uh, your clients can seek a remedy for that in court can you just like explain for people that don't know about pfa is like kind of what they are and how to get one or at least start it out that's
1: kind of a complex <laughs> yeah, that's process. Of a very complicated yeah, process all right um. just start
0: it off and we'll we'll go from there um, <laughs>
1: so basically like shannon said the pfa or protection from abuse we call it pfa Um, For short, because it's a nice, catchy title for a very not so nice thing. Right. It's basically in place to protect victims of domestic violence, regardless of your gender, um, against their abuser. Now, there's a lot of rules and it's very legal and complicated, but basically you have to be either biologically uh, related to somebody or have engaged in some kind of romantic relationship. There's actually cases out there that talk about whether or not people follow the three date rule when it comes to intercourse, because technically you're supposed to have been intimate partners. Wait, what's the three date rule? I haven't heard of this. Oh, like you don't people that don't have sex until the third date. Oh, like first date, second date, third date. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) no way. No, they're actually like, there are cases where the like appellate court says, we are not going to debate whether or not these people like are intimate partners because people are basically go in and they're like, "Well, I beat her up, but we never had sex, so she can't oh, file wow. against me." Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, that's not. Don't don't quote me on that. Yeah, that's yeah, not, yeah, That's not a. I, but basically, that was a case, something like a case I we read in law Interesting. school. Interesting. Okay. Um. So basically, what they say is, look, if you've been on dates been romantically and intertwined, they're going to assume that you meet the qualification to be intimate partners. Gotcha. But basically, and I've seen, actually seen this in court. There's people that are like my sister's brother's cousin's neighbor, uh, is the (laughs) defendant in this PFA. You can't do that. You, it has to be somebody, like I said, who's biologically or genetically related to you or somebody that you've either currently in or previously in a romantic relationship with.
0: I don't want to I don't mean to interrupt you. I think it's like worth stating, too, is it's hard sometimes because we don't have restraining orders in Pennsylvania. So whenever perhaps it's not reaching the threshold or it's against someone who like you're describing, it's not a biological child or an intimate partner, but they're somehow related in you know, a different way, but very closely, you know, you, you can't get a restraining order against somebody. So this is the only remedy. And sometimes it doesn't fit the
1: match. Right. I mean, I've had cases before where it's not necessarily been, you know, you have a former couple, whether they have children or not, and it's not like the former boyfriend is abusing, harassing, whatever the former girlfriend. It's the former boyfriend's new girlfriend is harassing mm. the, the former girlfriend or vice versa and then you have that issue of telling somebody well you know i don't know that you necessarily count and it kind of depends on what judge you get which is something we probably will go into later which is there's a a lot of discretion in family court judges and so sometimes you'll get a judge that grants something out of an abundance of caution that another judge might not necessarily grant right but so basically um you know the law says that it has to you know they they put in there stalking, harassing, those kind of things. So if someone's following you, threatening you, whatever. But kind of the threshold is that you are in imminent fear of bodily harm or death, which, which is kind of <laughs> ominous. Um, but, you know, that again kind of has that gray area of like what is valid for someone to be afraid of.
0: Yeah. Harm. And I think that you start to get into super sticky areas because... So first of all, you absolutely 110% want victims of domestic violence to come forward. Number one, it's super hard to get them to come forward in the first place. Number two, abusers are most lethal to the person the, whenever the person leaves the relationship. So that in and of itself scares individuals of uh, DV and intimate partner violence. We call it IPV. And then third of all you have the people that do abuse the system to get things out of custody or like exclusive possession of a house. And so then uh, they may hear these things from other people that, that may have gotten a divorce or, you know, because a lot of people get divorced and go through custody issues these days, Mm -hmm. um, which then also discourages the actual victims because, you know, they see what it can lead to. So it's like, It's a crazy process.
1: Yeah. And I know this is something, um, you know, you being a psychologist, you and I have talked about kind of socially, or I guess we talk about like domestic violence casually, but the system really hasn't caught up with situations where you have, it's not necessarily to the point where someone is actually physically assaulting somebody or threatening to physically assault them but you have either psychological or emotional control issues. Mm -hmm. Or I know I raised this to you recently was you have situations, for example, where this would raise a red flag to a therapist or a psychologist where one of the partners is threatening to harm a pet of some kind. Mm -hmm. And that raises a red flag and, and that's concerning, but a lot of times when people go into court and say, hey, you know, he didn't threaten to hit me, but he did threaten to kill my dog or he kicked the dog down the stairs, right? the judge doesn't see that in the same way that a psychologist necessarily would. Um, and that's something I tell my clients a lot is, like, unfortunately, the law, as it has in a lot of situations, hasn't really caught up with the fact that Domestic violence is not just, you know, someone punching somebody in the face or somebody physically harming somebody, which is kind of unfortunate because a lot of the situations I've seen don't necessarily involve a physical altercation so much as something that's a little bit more psychological. And maybe there might be one incident where someone hits somebody, but it's not usually dominated by some kind of physical altercation. I don't think that that is nearly as common as the other situation.
0: Yeah, and I think especially in divorce and custody issues, well, generally speaking, you know, you might have a situation where the abuser has mentally abused the individual for a long period of time, and perhaps it culminates in one physical altercation, but because they've been mentally abusing them for such a long period of time, perhaps that's the reason the person doesn't come forward. Coercive control is something that I talk about in some of my parental capacity evaluations, because... Perhaps it's like a financial piece of it. If the person who's being abused leaves, they'll be cut off financially. So that's a threat that is used. Or, you know, the abuser has cut them off from their family and friends so they no longer have a support system. And the statute is deficient because it doesn't have any remedy for that type of abuse. And also, what I've talked to some of the judges about uh, and what I would love to see implemented is at the temporary PFA stage, and I'll let you talk about that process I would love to see some sort of um, maybe like a social worker or, um, you know, a licensed clinician of some sort. Um, wouldn't that be nice? Like resources for mental health. What? <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> um, like there with a uh, some sort of like empirical tool. Like, you know, we have domestic violence screeners. We have these at least some sort of checklist so that we can provide that information to the judges to say, hey, you know, there's validity to this. And here's the research that supports it. I would definitely do this versus, okay, well, here's their docket. Here's what they have pending. Here's what they've been litigating over. And I would just be cautious of here's, here's the risk that you're taking in granting it because a PFA can really change the course of any type of litigation, whether it's custody or divorce proceedings.
1: You know, one of the things that I mean, obviously my focus is like the custody and divorce litigation, but I tell a lot of my clients who are the defendant in a PFA that this kind of situation can actually affect the entire course of your life because it's not a criminal situation. I mean, sometimes if there's an incident that results in a PFA, there'll also be criminal charges. Mm -hmm. But you know, if there is a final PFA granted and we, like you said, we can kind of go through the process of how that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But if a final PFA is granted, that shows up on any kind of you know FBI or state criminal record search. You usually have to report that to an employer. A lot of times you're barred from um, obtaining or continuing to possess firearms. Like there's a lot of issues that come into play when you have a final PFA. And I think a lot of people, and that's one of the problems I've seen, is a lot of people kind of use it as a, well, this is how I'll get custody of the kids, or this is how I'll get the house. And they don't think about the long, kind of the long game of, this guy didn't actually do anything to me, but I can convince the judge that he did something, or she. I'm not going to be be biased by gender. (laughs) Um, You know, this person didn't do anything to me, but I can convince a judge of that. And then I'm not thinking about the fact that if this person is no longer employed because they had a final PFA entered against them, then my child support's going to go down. Or that, you know, that at the end of the day, when we come to the settlement of a divorce, it might end up being that I owe them money instead of they owe me money. Right. Or like the child,
0: <laughs> you know, put in the middle of it, you know, having police come to your house and drag the child out away from its parent when there wasn't abuse going on, obviously 110% if there is a, you know, an unsafe situation going on, then that is absolutely when you implement these things. Um, But I, I mean, I agree. It's like, you're so in the, in the moment, because, you know, you're, you're litigating, and you're going through this really emotionally heightened time that you're not thinking these things through, like what you're saying, and the long term damage that it can do emotionally. And, you know, right now, in the moment, it might feel good to take custody away from the other parent, but long-term, you know, what if that three-year PFA is granted and then the kid isn't getting to see the other parent and what is that going to do to the kid psychologically?
1: Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think all of those are things, I mean, I've actually had judges say, you know, when you're in a contempt proceeding for a child support case, for example, and they're complaining about the fact that the other parent hasn't paid their child support in months because they're, they can't get a job And they said, well, you know, you filed a PFA, which may or may, you know, may have been valid, but then there's also that issue of contempt of a PFA order when it's something less than, you know, not necessarily an aggressive action on behalf of that person, but you want to get them, and so you're going to call the police on them and get them charged with it's called an ICC. We have a lot of abbreviations in the law. Um, an indirect criminal contempt, which is basically like a violation of a final mm-hmm. PFA order. And then he loses his job. And then you know a judge would say like, okay, so was it really worth it to you to call the police when he texted you and said, I miss you, in not a creepy, stalker, obsessive way. Right. <laughs> but now you're here six months later complaining because he's not paying his child support. Right.
0: Like six months ago, you were in here... With a text message saying, I miss you, and you were really like, that was the hill you wanted to die on, was an ICC, but now you're in here saying, well, I take it back, because I want this.
1: Yeah, I want my child support. Right. Um, You
0: can't have it all. You really can't. I just
1: don't understand why he can't find a job well. Um, And, you know, this isn't to downplay domestic violence in any way. I think that's
0: like a blanket statement that we are making. Like, just please, please, please know that Attorney Kavanaugh and I do not condone domestic violence. We are both very passionate advocates against domestic violence and intimate partner violence. So just that caveat, please let that stand for this entire episode. We are talking about the other cases where there is an absence of actual domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And people are using the guise of domestic violence as a way to get ahead in litigation.
1: Right. But I also think, I mean, everything is kind of, you know, a double-edged sword, I guess, like two sides of a coin, but there's definitely people who I've seen situations like we were talking about where we have, maybe there is actually physical violence or even if it's just psychological or mental and, that has almost become a defense by a lot of defendants that I've seen to PFAs, which is, oh, they're just trying to get ahead in the custody case, or mm-hmm. they're just trying to obtain this. And you know that's been kind of a burden that I've had to deal with as the plaintiff's attorney as mm-hmm. well, to say, yes, I get that there's kids here. Yes, I get that there might be a house that we're fighting over, but there's actually been domestic violence here. Right. Um, and I think the problem that you get with this whole process is these judges only see very small snippets of things. So if you have an attorney that can spin the plaintiff into being you know, just greedy and seeking primary custody of the kids or mm-hmm. just being greedy and seeking the house, mm-hmm. then it downplays their actual experience. Right, right. Um, but, you know, and then that's the other problem is a lot of defendants get very frustrated because and this kind of goes to the pfa process is that basically the first pfa order the temporary or emergency order is what we call ex parte which means the petitioner goes to court and goes and talks to the judge pleads their case and then the judge makes a decision a judgment call based off of what the petitioner says without hearing from the defendant without hearing both sides of the story so that kind of it's almost, Which is, and
0: that's the only time that that happens right, in that's court. The, that's the, the only, only time it's
1: ever going to happen. Only
0: plea, like the only type. It won't happen. It, it won't even happen in motions court.
1: <laughs> right. It doesn't happen in motions court. It doesn't happen. Um, you know, Who came I, up
0: with that law? <laughs>
1: listen, I, 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 listen, I'm sure, that, I, I, I mean, I can talk to you about like the public policy behind it, but um, you know, I think it's good in a certain way because then you don't have a situation where you have an actual abuser breathing down the neck of a victim trying to tell their story and they don't feel like cornered and it does give them that opportunity to kind of have the upper hand where I think in most of these situations where there's actually been abuse obviously they don't have the upper hand right yeah so it kind of allows them to take their control back you know and there's a lot of cases about this too is that this ex parte order can be in place for 10 to 14 days depending on the circumstances. And I'll tell you that with COVID, these ex parte orders were in place mm. for months. Oh, wow.
0: Really? Yeah. I had, I, I mean, had, I knew
1: they were backed up, but like I had some cases where it was, and it was backed up and because they didn't stop the temporary PFA process, which was great because a lot of people have talked about how domestic violence, especially during quarantine escalated and you're trapping people in with their abusers basically. Yeah. That was scary. Um, but you then have the other situation where usually when the court is open for business in every county, then you have, like I said, 10 to 14 days where, yes, someone's rights are being constrained because they might not be able to see their kids. They might not come, be able to come to their house, those kind of things. But they know within 10 or 14 days, there should be a hearing or some kind of negotiation and resolution to this
0: during precedented times during
1: precedented <laughs> times um, however we're currently living in unprecedented times. Oh God. Um, so Get you us know, out. I mean there's no and, and I can't fault anybody for this because again it's unprecedented times. <laughs> um, so I don't know that anybody was ever really prepared for that idea of like okay we've got all of these PFAs these temporary PFAs that are scheduled to be heard and now all of a sudden there's a global pandemic and those all need to be canceled
0: and you know in previous episodes we talked about we touched on this i think it was like the school whatever it doesn't matter but allegheny county did a really good job of like kicking into gear and our president judge judge clark did a really good job of implementing things and then um our aj and family court judge eaton she she got like shit rolling right away it was so i i think allegheny county did a good job and even with that there, of course there were still issues. Can you tell them about, uh, so the 10 to 14 day thing, can you talk about the one judge, one family and why that is relevant to like the 10 to 14 day? Yeah.
1: So basically let's say we're, you know, we're going to use a hypothetical, which lawyers love to to do. (laughs) I hate those
0: on the stand.
1: Hate them. (laughs) So, you know, you're, you have a victim, um, that goes in and files a PFA. So Allegheny County, uh, has the one judge, one family rule, I don't know if Shannon's talked about this previously. I don't think I have. I can't remember. So basically what it is, is there are about a dozen, give or take, depending on whether it's an election year. Um, (laughs) Depending
0: on the day. Depending on the day.
1: um, (laughs) There's about a dozen family court judges. Most of them kind of divide their time between adult and juvenile, Mm -hmm. um, which is like dependency and delinquency and stuff like that. Um, But basically the simple way to explain it and how I explain it to my clients is your case will be assigned to a judge when it starts, no matter how it starts with a PFA, with a custody case, whatever it is. And that judge will continue with you until one of two things happen. Either your case is over, whether your kids age out of the system or whatever, or that judge is no longer a judge in family division.
0: Um, And like, if you, it doesn't matter. I'm, you know i'm seeing this and i i've learned this throughout like my cases but like even if you let's say like you you have a kid you go through a custody or divorce action that kid turns 18 and ages out and then you get remarried and you have like a kid with a different person you still have the same judge like
1: yeah. it, and it gets they, like, it, and like it's very it, and i don't know how god bless the docket clerk right and because how do i keep don't know track how of that? people keep track of this because then you have like Mom over here had judge a as her family court judge in her first divorce and dad over here had family court judge B right and now mom and dad are getting married and having a kid but now they're fighting and do we give it to a do we give it to B because normally you know like I have a I have a, cu- a couple clients now who are on their first or second marriage or I mean I guess their second or third marriage right or whatever and it's the same judge that they had for the first divorce as they have for this divorce or so the first custody cases they have for this custody case. But I, you know, that is a conversation that I've probably had and don't remember, but there's some way that they figure out who get like between a and B, which judge gets it. If you've got two judges, involved in the situation. I don't know if they like flip pick them a, out of a hat. flip a coin. I don't know. Um, but I've definitely um, you know run into that which is it's nice in a way because then you know that the judge knows who you are. Because right. I think a lot of times in family court people are concerned because it's your whole life really like your kids and your d- marriage and all of that it's your whole life and you're concerned that the judge only gets to see like a very small you know picture of it. Um, so hopefully you're not spending all 18 years of your kid's life in family court, but if you are, the judges get to know you pretty well. Um, but when it comes to filing a PFA, basically you go down to the, let's assume that you're filing a temporary PFA and you go down to the family court building, which is still open. I will make that little note. It is still open for temporary PFAs. So if you are a victim of domestic violence, you can go down there and file a PFA any day of the week, even. During COVID.
0: Do you, they can do them online too, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. I thought so. Um,
1: And you can actually go for an emergency to your local magistrate, but that is only in effect for 24 hours or until the close of business, the following business day. So just a heads up on that. So you go down there to, let's say you're going down to family court or you're doing the application online. It's not assigned to a judge. It's whatever judge is assigned to PFAs that day, to temporary PFAs and final PFAs that day, here's it. So, you know, you've got, like I said, it doesn't matter whether your case has been for five years in front of Judge A. If you go down there and it's Judge B's day on PFA court, yeah, that judge, if they're smart and they're aware that there's a case, they may contact your family court judge and ask them, hey, what's going on here? But they might not. Right. And so... You know, that's kind of part of the issue and, and maybe your family court judge isn't in town that day or is sick or whatever you know they may not be able to get in touch and then you know they're not also going to the decision is ultimately going to be made by the judge who's hearing the evidence so mm-hmm. they may confer with the judge that's assigned to your case the, the judge that's assigned to your case can't technically tell them how to rule They Mm -hmm. can say, hey, they've tried this argument before and this is what I did this time. Mm -hmm. Or I could totally see that happening. You're right. You should probably grant it. But at the end of the day, it's in front of the judge who it's in front of. Right. That also kind of runs into a problem, too, because then you have people kind of playing bait and switch where, you know, their family court judge who they've been in front of for five years is very hip to... Both mom and dad and their eccentricities, but mom goes down there and there's a different judge and says the same thing that they said to their assigned judge six weeks ago, and this judge doesn't talk to their family court judge, doesn't talk to their assigned judge. And then something different happens. Yeah. So it definitely can throw a wrench in the whole process because then you have the opposite issue where... You have a judge who doesn't know you, who's having to make a credibility determination. Right. And so maybe your judge that you've been in front of for five years knows when you're telling the truth, when you're lying, when you're maybe, you know, shading things a little bit. Um, In your favor. And so, you know, this family court judge can say, you know, yeah, I, you know, I know when mom's lying and mom's not lying this time, dad did whatever. Or "I, I know when dad's lying, dad's telling the truth. The kid was, you know, being abused or whatever. And, This other judge who has no idea who you are, has never seen you in his or her entire life, is making that decision. Right. So, again, it's kind of like a double edged sword situation where PFAs are a wild, wild beast. And we have, (laughs) um, you know, we have a lot of very dedicated, a lot of pro bono um, attorneys from the Women's Center and Shelter. Oh my
0: gosh, I was totally going to give that information at the end too. But, go ahead um
1: no well you can i mean we can definitely bring it up yeah we
0: well we can we can give them the information to call at the end but yeah definitely Um, talk about that
1: women's center and shelter uh neighborhood legal services there's a couple of other like pro bono programs and there's actually volunteer attorneys who take a day out of their regular private practice schedule to go volunteer at pfa court who represent people pro bono for the most part we're talking about plaintiffs though sometimes when you have a situation where both parties have filed cross pfas against each other Mm -hmm. you have two pro bono attorneys on each side and Um, they
0: are great attorneys and we get super tired of hearing like are you fresh out of law school or like why are you working here they're working there because they're dedicated passionate advocates
1: like can i can i name drop
0: I think, yeah, I think she'd be okay with it.
1: Okay. So we have a very close friend, uh, Maggie Way Prescott, who works for <laughs> the uh, Women's Center and Shelter. And I would say, actually, I'll be honest, I had cases against her both in PFA court and, you know, regular kind of custody or divorce court. And I had the pleasure and I guess maybe displeasure of <laughs> uh, going up against her pretty early on. I think in both of our careers, she's a little bit older than I am. Uh, sorry, Maggie, um, but it, pretty early in both of our careers, and um, like she is a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, like she is she's, fierce. She's tough. She's fierce, and she's great. Um, she also loves to embroider swear words, which I love. Um, just a fun fact about your attorneys, but they're, I'm speaking. I'm speaking. Um, but no, I mean they're great, and that's and and they're very dedicated to the process. Right. Which is very, which is nice because a lot of times you have attorneys who either are always representing defendants in PFAs, or you have a someone who's very worried about the PFA, and then they go hire a criminal attorney. And no offense to the criminal attorneys out there, um, but family court is its own beast. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, we love
0: all attorneys. We're just saying. There's a reason family why they call.
1: There's the reason why they call it a circus, and. Um, <laughs> A lot of the rules of evidence and a lot of, and and I. Rules of
0: evidence. Never heard of her.
1: What? What? Um, A lot of those rules that you have in regular court just, they don't apply the same way in family court. I mean, I I hate to get all like, I'm a lawyer. But like, hearsay, you know, everyone's like, oh, that's hearsay, right? Because somebody else said it. Guess what? It's not hearsay if the other party said it. And in family court, it's almost always something the other party said. It's almost always always something the other party said. Of course. (laughs) So um, that's not hearsay. So you can sit there and literally it's he said, she said. That's a lot of times how our hearings go.
0: That's what she said. That's what she said.
1: (laughs) Um, So you've got a lot of situations where you have attorneys that aren't always involved in family court working in PFA court. Yeah. And that's how it can be kind of get a little bit. Interesting, you know. Um, you know, there's people that are trying to like be like, you can't prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I'm like, I don't have to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. (laughs) I'm proving this by a preponderance of the evidence. Mostly. Mostly. (laughs) (laughs) Um um, kind of. Kind of. (laughs) And that's the other thing, you know, again, all the complications and intricacies of PFAs is I keep dropping these like legal terms of art here. Um, They call it a quasi criminal proceeding. Really? Because technically it can't, because it affects your rights, like your right to own guns, your right to have custody of your children, those kind of things. Yeah, that's true. So they call it quasi criminal, but all of the civil court rules and all of the family court rules still apply in PFA court. So you aren't proving it beyond a reasonable doubt. You're, proving it by a preponderance of the evidence, which means it's more likely than not that this happened. Which, again, gets a little gray and a little dicey because you just have to prove, like, 51% likelihood. Like, we're not talking about, like... Actually, compare the election right now. Um, (laughs) You don't need to have a landslide. You (laughs) just need to get over 270. You just... (laughs) Um, So, you know, but... At the same time, the, per- the petitioner and the PFA carries the obligation to prove that this happened. Um, the assumption is not that it did happen. We don't go around and assuming assuming everybody is a domestic abuser.
0: Yeah, and you know, I think that at least from my experience and perspective in family court, you know, a lot of people think that that final PFA is like a real real determinant. However, you know. Uh, at least in my experience, I've seen the, temp- the the granting of the temporary PFA to be the direction changer, like regardless if they settle it or not or or do a non-contest or withdraw. You know, that starts, that like sets the temperature for a lot of the litigation or like removing someone from the house or custody. And what does that look like? And then what if, you know, because the, the plaintiff can request a continuance even though you're entitled to a hearing within 10 to 14 days the you know judges grant continuances all the time so it could extend into this you know longer thing and then it really changes the it could change the posture of the case it, it really affects people's lives long term so i think arguably the t- the granting or not granting of the temporary pfa is really a game changer
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I've definitely seen situations where you have PFAs or temporary PFAs that were filed and then ultimately resolved either by a consent agreement or something like that and never went to a final hearing um, being referenced six or seven years later because Mm -hmm. one of the custody – for example, one of the custody factors is present or past abuse committed by one of the parties. And so people will say, well – dad had to go file a temporary PFA against mom because of X, Y, Z, even if there was no hearing, um, no final hearing, no determination that abuse occurred. Um, it's just that like additional issue that kind of comes up. And a lot of times, unfortunately, when it comes to like, like you said, a custody case, people won't be able to agree to custody, but it's kind of like whoever has the child. Right. Keeps the
0: child. Right. And then it's the status quo. At least
1: temporarily. So, you know, for example, if I go file a temporary PFA, I get custody of the kids for 10 to 14 days. When we settle it, I might not be willing to agree to anything related to custody with you. And then I can say, well, go file a custody complaint and I'll see you in six to eight weeks whenever we, you know, have something in front of a judge that's actually going to be binding.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So I think that definitely, and then, you know, then you go and go to the judge and say, well, it's been six to eight weeks in separation and I've exclusively had the children. So we can't just rip them out of my care and put them with this other parent.
0: Right. And then you're going and then potentially you're looking at, I mean, you know, I I think that our judges are really great with, with, you know, trying to at least read between the lines. But, you know, if you're looking at reunification counseling, then you got to wait for that to take place. And then it could be more weeks. And I mean, it's sad that, um, number one, I mean, obviously, domestic violence in all forms is sad, whether it's mental, physical, or sexual. Um, but I think I think in all contentious cases, I think like not keeping um, the kids at the forefront. And I think that those are the ones that get lost a lot in these issues.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I definitely think that... That is an ongoing issue where, again, I mean, obviously, I, I, you know, you know that if someone is an abuser of, one, of their spouse or their significant other, they're pretty likely to, like, kind of continue that cycle of at least some kind of controlling behavior right. over other individuals. Um, but that does definitely affect things where, you know, it's a disagreement between mom and dad and maybe both of them. Got physical, which is entirely possible and probably more common than people want to admit. Um, and there's a
0: there's one judge in family court who is is fairly tolerant of that and under, not understanding, but will be like, "Listen, you guys both got into the heat of it. This is not what's going on here."
1: Right. But you know, and then you have both mom and dad who got physical with each other, and then all of a sudden it sets everything into motion with you know, kids being estranged from one parent or the other parent Mm -hmm. or, but it's really between mom and dad because dad was being an asshole Mm -hmm. and mom was feeding into it and being, you know, being aggressive to him. And then all of a sudden their things are blowing up between the two of them. And it's really about the two of them. And yes, maybe the kids hear mom and dad fighting and yelling, which isn't good. No one is saying that's that's good, right but it doesn't, the, the kids aren't really affected by it. Mm-hmm. But mom and dad are like, oh, well, I, you know, you put your hands on me. So now I'm going to go to court and file a PFA, even though I also put my hands on you.
0: Right. It's kind of like that age old argument that um, I mean, I'll use I'll use women as an example, because I know that we talk about this on in group chats all the time. But it's like, ga- OK, so gaslighting started from a divorce case in the in the 60s, which is where the term originated from, from that movie about a divorce case anyway. But it's like when you talk about how um, like guys that you're dating or just like interacting with are like, wow, she was so crazy, but like never talk about the crazy shit that they did leading up to the other person reacting. And that (laughs) is like reminding me of what you're saying. It's like, well, you know, if you were a fly on the wall, when that interaction took place, it looks like both parents acted crazy or one parent, no matter who it was, egged the other parent on or pushed them to the edge. And then the other parent reacted and probably an inappropriate way no one's saying it was appropriate but it's like y'all just did that to each other and then you both have to take responsibility (laughs) for it because you said this and you said this but you both acted like assholes
1: right well i'm (laughs) encouraging everybody to use your words um use your words don't use your fists but um also don't you know, don't use mean words. Be nice to each other. I'm
0: guilty of it. You know that. Oh,
1: yeah. No. Um, and I'm guilty of it, too. I said I'm no saint. No. I'm I not. won't pretend to be. But, you know, I mean, I do a lot. I, I will say I do a lot of the, like, okay, we're not going to do that again. We're not going to say that again. Right. To my clients. Um, But you see it all the time in, in these cases where if you have been in a intimate relationship with somebody, you know what pushes their buttons.
0: Absolutely. And
1: so... I see it where both parties instigate the other one, and then they then something blows up, and they're like, "Oh, I don't know what happened." Right,
0: I have no idea what possibly could have set that person off. It's so strange.
1: It's so, it's so weird to me, <laughs> you know. Get I, out of here! <laughs> I called her that one name that she told me never to call her, and then she punched a wall. I don't understand, um, <laughs> you know. It, it, uh, but it's like you were in,
0: in most cases, like even if you weren't married, you were in a partnership with this person for a period of time, like, you know, what's going to make them mad. It's either going to be, you know, it's whatever, whatever right. turns them, whatever pushes them
1: button. Like, were you about to say whatever turns them on? I was, you but probably the opposite of that. Right. right. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um,
1: but also, <laughs> also, you know, and, and I think that this is interesting too, is the way that things can be taken out of context as well. Because everyone's guilty of saying things they don't mean. I, I, you know, I just told you to use your words wisely, but I also don't always use my words wisely. Um, <laughs> but you have people that, you know, like if you told me, if I made you angry and you said to me, Alex, I could kill you right now. I know you're not going to kill me. Right. Right. I know you're probably going to be mad at me. Maybe you'll be like, we're not hanging out this Friday, which would make me very sad. Right. But you're not going to kill me. Right. Um, I would never. But I could absolutely then say, well, go file a document. It doesn't even need to be a PFA, but I could say Dr. Shannon Edwards told me she was going to kill me. Right. And you know, it's taken out of context. Um, now certain times I will say I've had judges say there's no appropriate context to say, you know, to tell somebody that, I, you know, I wish you would, you know, walk out in front of a car and die. (laughs) I've actually had somebody say that. Like I've, and I am sure you can guess what judge it was, but she like shook her head and was like, I don't know. When would it be appropriate to say that to anybody, much less the mother of your child? Uh, um, but it happens. I mean, what if you
0: tell someone to do something, but you don't tell them and die and then you apologize for it later?
1: Oh, what? Like walk out into a car, but I hope you only break your leg. Is that Well, like,
0: no, I told like Robin and I talked about this last week when we were talking about OFW messages and I, I have told the father of my child to drive off a cliff like I, I did that. That was really mean. And I take it back. But I didn't stay and die because I don't. I,
1: you don't want him to, but you do want him to like be moderately made? No.
0: <laughs> of course not. No, not at no. all. We
1: don't want we don't want Dr. J to be No, injured. not at all. Um, but no, I think that
0: And like in terms of context, like what you're talking about, it's like whenever you go to present these things, whether it's at a PFA hearing or custody or anything in court, of course you're just gonna present them with the one text message that says horrible things you're not going to then present the other half of the text messages it's like i'm sorry or like anything else
1: oh right right you're not going to say here's the 17 messages i sent to her where i called her a piece of garbage right. <laughs> before she told me to drive off a cliff right um here's just this one here's the one text message um and the judge is
0: like well where's the rest of them i i don't I have
1: don't them i, I, I
0: my oh, my phone deleted them. one time, I had I had somebody say that their kid deleted everything. <laughs> but oh yeah, the baby.
1: Yes, the baby deleted every baby. <laughs> text message except for this one text message that I have a screenshot of. Shocking. Um, but I've no, I've and I've had a lot of judges say, which is a benefit to our court system, is they're 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 saying, well, give me the context of it because there's a rare incident where a judge is going to say there is no appropriate. Time or place for you to have said that,
0: and I like that. That judge was like, was like, can you please tell me, like, help me understand what kind of context would that be appropriate?
1: Well, and I and I appreciate this because at that point the other individual said, uh, well, she was annoying me. She kept texting me to go buy diapers for our kid, and I was like, no, oh my that's god, not appropriate to say anything like that. They
0: should go to parenting classes. That would be good.
1: That would be good. That would be helpful. Um, But so, but a lot of judges do really try to get the context of these messages and that's the good thing um, about PFA court even if it can, can be a long drawn out day. Um, Usually we're in for the long haul like at least eight to ten hours of of court time. It's a lot. Because we're sitting around waiting, we're negotiating, the judge is hearing all of the PFAs. Um, It's kind of like a cattle call and it's, kind of unfortunate how that works because yeah. it sucks for everybody involved. And it sucks even worse for victims because they have to sit there right. and wait and sit on their hands and get anxious and wound up. Um, the good that's, thing
0: That's the worst part. The yeah. good thing
1: about the temporary PFA process is you're kind of in and out where when you're waiting on a final hearing, you could be sitting there for six hours and Right. you're exhausted and you had to go to the bathroom and be escorted to the bathroom by a, sh- a deputy sheriff because your abuser is sitting out in the other waiting room. Right. Um, and so that sucks, but I don't know that there's a better way to handle it. Now, granted with COVID unprecedented time, right now we have, you know, the benefit of having zoom and teams and those kind of things that don't make you have that same amount of interaction.
0: Yeah. Which has been a benefit. And our AJ, our administrative judge has, has brought that up several times, you know, and that's, I think that's a benefit.
1: Right. I mean, I think that I've had clients even say it's a whole lot easier for me to confront my abuser Mm-hmm. or to testify to a judge and admit to a judge that I am a victim of domestic violence when there's that little bit of buffer mm-hmm. where, you know, maybe my attorney's in the room with me, but the judge isn't there. And the, per- the perpetrator not there. The right. other attorney's not there. It makes them feel a little bit safer, which is really, you know, I think a benefit and yeah. there's been cons to COVID, but that may be one of the benefits that we, that we have is that we can kind of, give people a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more room to feel comfortable. Absolutely. um, Expressing these things. Um, You know, I've actually had like, Hey, can the perpetrator turn off his camera or the alleged alleged perpetrator? Right, right, right. Innocent (laughs) until proven guilty. Yes. um, You know, can, can the defendant, we'll say defendant, turn off his camera or, you know, is there a way that, we could turn the camera on to just the attorney Mm -hmm. as opposed to the defendant or, or even, I mean, if it's a cross PFA, I don't want to say that the defendants are always the ones that that do these things, you know, so that there is a little bit more room. And so one of the few, I was going to
0: say one of the very few things that are actually one of the
1: few benefits of beneficial.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, I really just want to thank you for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. Um, and I wanted to let our listeners know that if you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, you can call uh, the Women's Center and Shelter of Greater Pittsburgh's uh, 24-hour hotline. Uh, and that's 412-687-8005. They also have text support. So if you are not in a position to call, uh, you can text them, save the number under a different name, uh, and text it later. And that 412-744-744 eight four four five uh and as always i would love your feedback if you have questions i'm gonna make alex answer them i'll send them to her everything
1: will come with the legal caveat of it depends, <laughs> and this is not legal advice oh yeah
0: it'll filter through me but please dm us um DM me uh at umadbropgh PGH on Instagram, send me an email at bro, pgh at gmail.com, and please visit our webpage and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.